Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, the still ailing but slowly recovering executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, John. And sitting in today for the absent, Christine Rosen, Washington Free Beacon editor and co-host of the Ink Stained Wretches podcast available almost every Friday, pretty much every Friday with Chris Starwalt, Eliana Johnson. Hi, Eliana. Hi, John. Um, let us discuss this bizarre event that happened yesterday in the world of uh, progressive Democrats and their relation to the Biden administration. Out of nowhere, a letter is issued seemingly magically from in the ether from 30 progressive House Democrats asking the Biden administration to redouble its efforts to find a diplomatic solution to the war in Ukraine. The letter was issued, and almost immediately, I believe, phone calls went out from the Biden White House saying, what the F are you doing? It's two weeks before the election. Why are you picking up Roigus with us on the war in Ukraine? Are you insane? You are all about to lose your majority in the House. We are trying to keep the Senate. You're making an internecine battle on Ukraine. What the hell is going on? And immediately, uh, the lead progressives, uh, Pokan of Colorado and Pramila Jayapal, I can't remember what state she's from. Washington, Washington. State. Thank you, Washington State. Both said, what we didn't i didn't what there's no we the, we must win in ukraine we cannot divide ourselves from the ukrainians the, what the ukrainians want that's what we want which is exact so um and then pokan said this this was july quote unquote mark pokan said this was july so people were like what do you mean this was july what does that mean it means it was written in july and then somehow somebody pressed a button and it was in everybody's mailbox. Now, that is actually, and the, no one knows how it happened. Now, somebody knows how it happened because Politico got it yesterday and reported on it. The Washington Post. Was it Washington Post? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so... They then said, you know, we don't want to be, we don't want any daylight between us and the Ukrainian government. So apologists, progressive apologists, like uh, Talking Points Memo's Josh Marshall said, I don't know what's going on here. I mean, the statement is incoherent because the statement says we need to find a diplomatic solution, but also says we support the Ukrainians. Why did they issue it? And I think this is one of these moments I will just say before we begin the discussion where you see the wheels coming off it when political when politics is going badly for one party or another or one group or another weird things happen all the time bad advance work there's a rainstorm that comes out of nowhere and you know like they have to cancel rally events 
when I wrote my book about the first uh, Bush administration, Hell of a Ride, one thing I noticed was that throughout the year 1992, as Bush was collapsing, there were just these weird incompetencies and mistakes and bizarre garbles that just suggested some even nature itself was turning on Bush. And 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 they just know they th these are highly professional people and somehow they just couldn't do anything right. Sort of like the Yankees in the four game series they lost where they couldn't do anything right after having won 100 games. So what what's the story here? So uh, I think, as I say, if you want to take the we should discuss what it means, but it's also a sign, this kind of like uh, objective correlative that the wheels are coming off the Democratic effort uh, for midterm, uh, saving themselves in the midterms. Eliana, what's your what's your view? It is an interesting sign. I mean, there's, um, you know, on the one hand, it could be a flub of some sort. On the other hand, it could be a Supreme Court type of like Dobbs leak, which is some staffer somewhere who knew of this is trying to force the administration's hand at a moment of weakness. And who knows which one it is? Um, you know, it's like don't assign to intention what you could assign to, stu to stupidity. Um, I don't know, but it really is uh, a sign that things are not going well for the administration. But I read this with interest um, because obviously, I, you know, you a commentary, us at the Free Beacon, um, we care about a muscular internationalist foreign policy. And this was another sign to me of like a new emerging bipartisan consensus and a real like his, you know, like, uh, meeting of the far left and the far right um, that wants American retrenchment. Now we're hearing from the far left, but it is an indication to me that like Kevin McCarthy has done a good job of keeping his crazy right flank quiet and united on U Ukraine. And it is interesting to me that like Nancy Pelosi um, did not succeed in this case. She has not gotten these people to shut up. I don't necessarily share that sunny assessment of uh, Mr. McCarthy's performance on this issue. Nevertheless, um, I do agree with you, Eliana. The timing of this is pretty conspicuous. I try not to be conspiratorial and Hanlon's razor is usually applicable. Um, but this drops at a time of maximum effect. It just ha happens to coincide with Kevin McCarthy giving a lot of daylight, silly, un unnecessary daylight to the uh, idea that Republicans are united or not united behind Ukraine's war effort. Um, the the Democrats, conferences, Democrats, Democrats, well, the com Republicans in the conference who want to say, scale this back and focus on domestic spending, probably number about 30, maybe roughly the, the same number of progressives who affix totally. their names to this, to this. So it's not a big part of the conference, um, but similarly, small number of people, this makes it a lot easier for Kevin McCarthy to back off that, to tell his, his members who are, uh, discomfited by the amount of support we're providing to Ukraine. Like, you know, this is now our issue. We can own this and we have to oppose pro uh, progressives on this. And it undermines a narrative that the White House has been pushing, which is that the president has been pushing that Republicans are going to sacrifice the Ukrainian war effort if they get into the majority. This scuttles all, all that. It was probably not going to move the election, really. But it was just one narrative in Democrats' favor when they don't have a lot going for them. And now even that's gone. It's very good. I, I saw intention right away. I'll tell you what my reading was, and I don't know that it that it will bear up um, given given 
what we what we learn about this over time. But I figured that I, I recalled seeing uh, sort of town hall style meetings with AOC and others where her progressive fans were shouting her down over Ukraine, uh, accusing her of you know wanting to start a nuclear war. And uh, these progressives put too much weight in, in their progressive bases. And, and I was thinking, oh, they, they, they think that, that this gives them a, a better shot in the run up to, to midterms. If, if they just if they try to try to sort of, you know, calm, calm, calm down the anti-war uh, faction on their own side. I don't disagree with you on this, Abe, because uh, this brings in entirely extraneous matters. But I watched um, Morning Joe for an hour this morning and there was one of those like panels. There were like 80 people on the panel. I mean, there was Caddy Kay, there was Johnson Lemire, there was uh, John Heileman, there was Steve Ratner, there was Eugene Robinson, there was my Aunt Gertie. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like 40 different people and, and Scarborough was monologuing and there was great frustration at why the Democrats aren't going out there trumpeting how great they've been on economics. Heileman said it. Uh, Scarborough, like, isn't the takeaway those, like that's the losing message to tell people how wonderful you've been well, performing when but, they're all feeling the pain? But right, but here, here's what's interesting. It's like, why aren't they going out and saying you're going to get an eight percent social security cost of living increase next year? That's fantastic. Not a single person on that panel said. Well, why would you be getting an 8% social security cost of living increase? Could it be because the inflation rate is eight and a half percent? Right. Or do that we want to be trumpeting? Going up if you're a middle class earner to pay right. for that. Yeah. I mean, whether, whether you like it or not. But they're frustrated, you see, because they feel the election slipping away. And Steve Ratner was there with all sorts of tables showing how the likely, you know, there's a likely the 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 moderate view says now that republicans win 25 seats and the more expansive view says republicans win 40 seats in the house and obviously if they win 25 seats and certainly if they win 40 seats then they're going to win the senate even if you don't go race by race in the senate like that that's sort of how this how this is going to work and they're like no 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 it can't, it can't be like this they they need to have a good message on the economy but the White House, at the very least, however incompetent, whatever you might think of them, they don't want to talk about the economy because talking about the economy brings up inflation. And that is the number, according to what is it, 40, upwards of 40% in every poll now of Americans say that inflation is the number one issue. That means, say economy, you're saying inflation. They don't want to talk about inflation. Now, as Noah, you say, they can't even talk about Ukraine because now they got a revolt uh, of more than 10% of the caucus, right? It was 30 signatories to that letter. There are, what, 222 Democrats in the House? So it's it's not a majority. It's not even, it's it's a small, it's a rump. It's exactly the same proportion, roughly, probably the same the proportion of Republicans. Right. So There's no difference between you on this issue. Yeah. Um, 
Biden has been testing over the last four days because of all this hysteria about how everything's slipping away, some of these economic messages, right? If the Republican, you think kind of it's like this. If you think it's bad now, vote the Republicans in and, oh, it's going to get a lot worse. Again, not really a great, it's not not really a great message. Um, You know, he's done so much. and uh, it's a terrible message. It's a terrible message. Of course, it, it's a terrible message. It, 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 it shines a spotlight on how bad you're doing. You're saying, I screwed this up so badly that only I can unscrew it up. But you're admitting you screwed it up. Look, there's two weeks until election day, and 10 million people have already voted. Now, 2018, 118 million people voted. So, in fact, these early voting numbers so far aren't that eye-popping in relation because it's not even 10% of the overall electorate. But it's two weeks. You're not changing your economic message in two weeks. You can't change your economic message in two weeks. It is what it is. Talk about something else. But you have this conventional wisdom panel saying, talk about the economy and trumpet your own conduct. And where this connects to what you guys are talking about is if AOC AOC thinks that it's good or the AOC progressives think it's good, they'll help themselves by going to the public and saying, we want a negotiated solution. And the Acela axis thinks it would be great for Biden to talk about his successes with the economy, and they're both delusional. Okay, can I? But in different ways. Go it's ahead. A brief, sort of a pivot to a different okay. yeah. topic, but it, it dovetails with this because you can tell Joe Biden has been coached, or at least believes that it's in his interest to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, um, regardless of its effects on inflation. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. This is all Democrats can point to to say at least we did something on inflation. And by the way, they're advertising nothing that they want to do on inflation if they were to retain their majorities. They're just saying, this is what it is, go for it, um, which is a, a uniquely terrible message. But that's the predicament they're in. So Joe Biden is on the stage yesterday and he's asked about uh, the legislative, the statutory basis for his uh, student loan debt transference scheme um, onto the taxpayer shoulders. And Joe Biden's alibi has been cooked up for him by his allies in the press. They spent a week they spent a weekend talking about how um, Joe Biden, or they spent several weeks actually talking about how uh, Joe Biden's legislative predicate for this is the Heroes Act, which was passed post 9 11. It's a it's a weird usurpation. Uh, uh, Mark Theason says it's a uh, it's stolen valor because it's essentially you know giving away this benefit for people who served in the armed forces to people who did not and most certainly don't deserve it. Nevertheless, that's supposed to be the legislative basis for this, and people have been saying, well, that's that's the predicate for it. And Joe Biden goes up on stage and says, no, the predicate for it is the Inflation Reduction Act, which no one has ever said, which the legislation has no bearing on this whatsoever. It's an executive order, so it has no legislative predicate at all. But if it did, it would be the HEROES Act, not the Inflation Reduction Act. He just undermined his own alibi, threw all his allies under the bus. And I guess this is one of those act of nature things, because this Joe Biden's mind is a force of nature at this point. Um, It is unwieldy and uh, uncontrolled. Um, but he just he just undermined the whole case and then s- sacrificed the Democrats' economic case in the process by suggesting that this this it, the the uh, debt transference scheme is justified by the Inflation Reduction Act and the debt transference scheme isn't going anywhere. 
The courts have imposed an injunction on it. Whatever okay. it was supposed to do to the electorate, it will not do. Okay. Here's the defense of Biden. And it again, it's so terrible that you kind of hope that it was a mistake. Because he might say, look, the reason that we have all this money to put toward um, retiring all this student loan debt is that we passed this fantastic Inflation Reduction Act. It's going to lower the deficit. And therefore, we had money that we could apply to that. But of course, the reason that that is a terrible argument is that scored by everybody, the Inflation Reduction Act does not do anything to help the deficit. In fact, in some calculations, it brings it up. In some cal- it goes down, then it goes up, it goes up, and then it goes down in 2027 if nothing happens. But whatever it is, it is not a deficit reduction act that is going to help pay for the 400 to $700 billion that the loan uh, forgiveness thing will do. So again, Biden is talking about the economy and his role in the economy, and he doesn't want to do that for whoever is still on the fence. Like, they don't want to spend two weeks saying, just pay a lot of attention to the economy now while you're making your decision about who you're going to vote for. Because that's an open and shut case not to vote for a Democrat. All right. I having listened to you guys all week, I think I'm going to brook some disagreement, but that's fine. Yay. Um, great. Okay. I don't think, cause I, I heard Noah talking about how, you know, Republicans have done a great job messaging uh, this stuff and maybe they have, but I don't think it matters what the Democrats messaging of any of this is like maybe a little bit on the margins, but I don't think it matters what they say at this point or you know, two months ago or, or 12 weeks ago or 20 weeks ago, I think like basically Americans are smart. They know who is in charge. They know how much groceries cost and they know what crime looks like out on the streets. Like I'm telling you, you know, I can't, I live in DC. I came home and there was a detective card in my door wanting the footage from my camera because there was a carjacking, you know, outside on the street that didn't happen before. And I think like lots of people are having those kinds of experience. I don't think you can message that away. Like those are the sorts of things. So messaging is like the frosting and Democrats are trying to frost a turd and you can't like, that's not going to be effective. I I, think the Democrats played, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I I agree that uh, the messaging doesn't matter when it comes to any given issue in in which uh, the Democrats are flailing, if not drowning. I think it matters in a sort of meta sense, uh, which relates back to John's point about the wheels coming off and that, Every time they, they they make an attempt at some sort of messaging campaign, it becomes clear that they're just not speaking with one voice. They don't have their act together. Um, there's no agreement, and they're just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. But it's not it's not a question of them trying to talk themselves out of any particular crisis. That I agree that it's it's beyond that. Um, what I was what I was thinking is the Democrats were in they weren't in a sweet spot, but the summer offered them real respite in this sense, which is. They don't want to talk about the economy. 
by the way, even talking about foreign affairs and foreign policy brings up Afghanistan. People sort of forget that, like, it's not like the memory of what happened with the helicopters and and 13 Marines getting killed and all of that, like that, like that, that is was so vanishingly long ago that nobody remembers. The more, in some ways, the more you talk about Ukraine, the more Afghanistan might start tickling the consciousness also. So they these there's not much for them to talk about. And then suddenly they were gifted with two issues. Dobbs and abortion, which has nothing to do with the current political fights that they've been going through since, you know, they took office. And Trump and Mar-a-Lago and the mishandling of classified information and Trump's reemergence as a centerpiece, because then they could remind Democratic voters whom they need to turn out to the polls in, in high numbers, how much they dislike Trump, to be scared of Trump, to connect the 2022 midterms to Trump, which was not going to be that easy, but they suddenly had this date, this possibility, right? August, big scene in August. Trump has a temper tantrum. He starts playing games with the special master. And there is this fact, which is he took these classified files and he brought them to his and he didn't return. And he lied about it and all of that. And they had these two things and they, and they worked for a while. They raised a lot of money on them. They got a lot of headlines. They reminded people they could remind and all that. But they're kind of one-time things. Like, you can't feel as enraged by Dobbs in October as you did in June by the very nature of how rage works. I mean, I suppose, you know, if there were, particularly because maybe the victory in Kansas against the abortion referendum, maybe that, complicated matters from them if they had lost that if kansas had actually voted the way you know not the way that they wanted they could have said it's all coming they're coming for you they're coming for your jugular it's happening the first real electoral event relating to abortion went the way that they wanted it to go that drained some of the outrage and terror it was like a pressure valve right exactly and then same thing with Trump. Like, okay, so that you had you were reminded of it. Would have been better if maybe it was the first week of November. Maybe if it really w- was going to stir Democratic, uh, you know, outrage. But it was just too early, and then things began to regress to the mean over time. And the issue set that people are going to vote on is just horrible for them, and there's nothing they can do about it. There is nothing they can do because, oh, the other thing was, oh, we've had a lot of successes, right? We passed all that. We did the CHIPS Act and we did the Schmips Act and we did the inflation reduction. Oh, my God, the most, what an amazing set of legislative accomplishments, except guess what? Every one of them reminds you of the bad story about inflation and gas prices and stuff like that. So um, so they had these three issues and then they, they just... Now we're back to the enduring issues, which are your prices are going up and crime is going up and you're you're menaced, you're menaced on the street and you're menaced in the, so, in the grocery store and you're menaced if you want to buy a used car. Things are not going your way, even though you're even though unemployment is down and salaries are increasing. And that's just the fact of it. Like if if Dobbs hadn't come down, 
we would be in a, you know, they, people would already be like, you know, making their reservations for, you know, the resumes would have gone out, been going out on Capitol Hill in September and people would be making vacation plans for the day for November 9th because, uh, you know, uh, what else were they going to do since they were going to lose the majorities everywhere. And they had this, this thing happen where they got hope and, uh, as the great line and my favorite line in all of moviedom and a movie that I don't particularly like and a movie you've never heard of called Clockwise with John Cleese written by Michael Frayn, where a guy has to get somewhere by five o'clock and he can't get there and everything is conspiring against him. And at one point he's sitting on the side of the road and he says, it's not the despair, it's the hope I can't stand. And Democrats got hope. And the hope has created this intolerable nightmare for them, as I saw on Morning Joe this morning. The hope is maybe we can stave off the apocalypse. And now we've had an idea that we can stave off the apocalypse. And now the apocalypse coming is just twice as painful as it would have been otherwise. Because we we had this vision of being spared. Okay, that's the end of that monologue. I guess. So Eliana, um, as somebody who, uh, you, your, your interesting journey professionally is you started in conservative media, you went into mainstream media, you came back to conservative media and you were at Politico for what, five years? I was there for four years. Okay. Um, but my other journey is from print at the New York sun um, and national review to, oh, to, to cable, cable news and kind of back to digital media. Right. Okay. So give us a sense of how you feel basically having been in the Politico newsroom until what, 2018, 2019? Uh, Late 2019. Okay. What the mood might be like there among the, you know, 500 people, the astoundingly large number of people who work at Politico. Quite large. Yeah. Well, I think it's a maybe approximates the mood in the uh, in the in the White House because uh, it's you know same sorts of same sorts of people, same sorts of politics. But I do think like you know Politico is an interesting case because they were bought by Axel Springer, this German company, which has this amazing CEO um, and Matthias Dorfner. Say, he he is like definitely has a lock on being a Washington Free Beacon Man of the Year. And so I think Politico is this interesting place where they have a very very liberal staff, and now they're bought by this big German company, and they have a conservative owner. Um, but I think the mood. Um, you know, they're like arm's length from depression, desperation. Um, but there's also this kind of like excitement where they get to cover the opposition and like Trump and the Trump years were very, very good to journalists. Um, they were a financial boon to journalists. Um, Trump was a star making machine, like the David, Ge- the, the Joni Mitchell uh, song about David Geffen. Trump was a star making machine for the journalism in this industry. And I think there's a real appetite for that again, which is why you see journalists go crazy every time Trump comes back, because he was very, very good to them. 
and their obsessive coverage of him is what he likes. Like he is very, very good. To, uh, and they are very, very good to him in that they cover him obsessively, which is what he wants. And so I do think there's like, you know, they, they may be depressed. Democrats lose. They think it's terrible for the company, com uh, country, terrible for democracy. We have democracy coveraged us at the same time. Like they're excited and ravenous and eager to cover the evil, evil Republicans who are going to come into the majority, and they will cover them with an energy and a fervor and an excitement and uh, that we did not see in coverage of the Biden administration and the Democratic majorities, I guarantee you. That's good, by the way. That would be totally. perfectly welcome. Totally. And in fact, they're going to um, have a lot of things to, to chew on in a Republican majority. Totally. But, you know. You know, what we should wish for is that kind of energy um, and eagerness to uncover scan the scandals of, of both parties. We and we've been saying this forever, but Democrats are on both sides. Democrats are done a profound disservice by the the impulse in newsrooms to cover for their uh, mistakes. Totally. They waltz into like minefields constantly and every, they get a lot of reinforcement about how lovely the, you know, the walk through the minefield is going to be. And it does them no favors. Yeah. Instead, we have like the mainstream media over here, the Times, the Post, the Journal, CNN, uh, MSNBC and uh, and and the Washington Free Beacon to cover the Democrats. We have the, the 20 staffers at the Free Beacon holding I, the Democrats to account. I mean, so there was a debate last night right between Charlie Crist and Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor's debate following up on last week's debate between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock tonight, we have Fetterman versus Oz. We have Kathy Hochul versus um, uh, Lee Zeldin. Once again, showing the um, incredibly stupid decision-making that comes around debating, where basically all of these races have come down to a single debate because one or another candidate thinks that it's in their interest to debate less. It is in every candidate's interest to debate more. You want these debates to matter less because you have one. Carter learned, learned this in 1980. Having one debate is really stupid. John, come on. If you're John yeah. Fetterman, is it your interest okay. to stand up on that stage no. and have, no. have the Fair state enough. of Pennsylvania? But he's, okay, but he's, but no, he's a man, special. It would be. Uh, over at the Dispatch, Sarah Isger has made this point, and she's absolutely right that you know the more debates you have, the less individually they matter. And right. then everybody kind of can, doesn't remember that one horrible moment because there were so many horrible moments. I mean, that right. doesn't sound intuitive, but it actually yeah. you know does yeah. make them all sting a right. little bit less. Also, you give yourself another bite at the apple, sort of like the Yankees who had four, three bites at the apple after losing the first <laughs> game and then lost four nothing. But I don't want to go into that again. I she also said uh, that the Fetterman campaign made a really foolish decision around this NBC interview because they should have been doing, you know, off the record background briefings beforehand. All this makes makes perfect sense. She's right. And she's a former campaign professional who should know. So the you got to assume that the Fetterman campaign is staffed with a lot of folks who don't know the ins and outs of the business or are making very rash decisions, fear-induced decisions. Right. But I want to bring this up because um, in both of these cases, in candidates despised by the mainstream media, right? And I, I'm not saying I don't despise Herschel Walker because I kind of do, but, you know, despised by the mainstream media. Um, in each of these cases, last night... DeSantis was the guy who delivered the knockout blow. Not that he wasn't going to win in a walk anyway, but Chris goes after him and says, will you commit to the people of Florida that you will, you will be their governor for another four years? 
meaning like you're just going to go off and run for president, which is a bizarre thing, by the way, for your rival to complain about, because if he's so terrible, maybe you don't want him to be governor of Florida anymore. And you shouldn't be pressing him to commit to run another four years. But DeSantis, this was in violation of the rules of the debate where the candidates were not supposed to address one another. DeSantis refused to respond to Christ. And then he said, is it my turn? And then he said something like, uh, you know, the only dead donkey that I'm interested in knocking out right now is Charlie Crist. Um, prepared line, waiting to deliver it. He didn't know quite when he was going to do it. He did it. It's the only thing anybody will remember from that debate, just as the only thing that anybody is going to remember from the Walker uh, a Warnock debate was the... Um, Warnock thinking that he had delivered a knockout blow by saying there's a doctor and a woman in that room deciding on what's going on and the government three three people are too many in that room and Walker with remarkable dexterity I would say that he showed on the football field and has shown in little other not much else in his life because uh, it's not not clear that he could have been prepared for it said I just would remind you, there's also a baby in that room. So what it turns else, out he what, was what probably else is there, prepared what else for is there to remember? What else because, is there to remember from? So Warnock has been debates. using this line for three or oh, four okay, years. Okay, so he was prepared. Okay, yeah. So I, I thought the same thing because I hadn't heard it, but he has been using this line on the stump <clears throat> for for several years. But Walker hadn't. You know, Walker hadn't had the opportunity to to field this line. So yeah, his is going to hit harder, even if, if only because you probably heard Warnock say this before. I hadn't, but if you're in Georgia, you might have. So debate. So why so anyway, would you use that? Why would you use that that canned line when you know it's just a it's a softball? Because they just for the reasons that you say, Noah, they don't know it's a softball. And this is very. I used to say this is less true. Like for years, the classic thing that people on the right, Jonah Goldberg and I would say, and others would say, is that when you're a conservative, particularly if you're a conservative in media, and Eliana knows this as well you end up being bilingual. You have to be fluent in liberal, but you're also fluent in conservatism. And you therefore have a step, you have a, you have a, you have a leg up on liberals because they're fluent in liberal, but they, they, they have no idea what conservatives think. And Nancy, even Nancy Pelosi the other day, who was a very canny political player said in some interview, I mean, the tr truth is I can't imagine why anybody would vote for those guys. She's the Speaker of the House. Granted, she's from a very liberal district in San Francisco and all of that. Really? Is that something you want the Speaker of that? You can't understand why anybody would vote for a Republican? I understand why people vote for Democrats. I even understand the temptation to vote for Democrats. I understand, and I don't mean negatively. I don't mean because, you know, they're, they're, they want to impose communism. I mean, I understand what the appeal is. And I even might find it tempting, but I think that the solutions don't work. And similarly, I think in this case, Warnock had no idea that he was serving up, uh, you know, a, a fastball straight down the middle that Walker could, could hit out of the park. Because in his world, no one ever said to him, there's a baby in the room. So, that is a real liability, and it's the liability that the Biden administration demonstrated over the last two years. It's like, don't do this. This will happen. If you are one, if you are one, if you're like us, you know history in a certain way, and you know that like 
if you pull out of Afghanistan, it's going to look like Vietnam if the way you the way you're doing it or if you inject six trillion dollars into the economy, it's going to have an inflationary impact. But when he's having conversations in the room around him, no one is saying that. I don't know. That's my that that's where that's where I I, I go with that. And this could happen tonight with with Fetterman and and Zeldin. Like we we don't we don't and uh, Hokel Zeldin and Fetterman Oz. We don't know. What? I want to bring something else to the go table ahead. that we've been saying for a very long time, only because. Uh, you know, more of your bilingual po points, or at least a, an attachment to some understanding of history. Um, <clears throat> we were saying it was a pretty bad idea for Democrats to spend $43 million helping people who are 2020 truthers, election deniers, the most noxious of Republican candidates to win their primaries. But they did. They spent many, many millions of dollars, in some cases, filling gaps that the candidates' campaigns and uh, uh, other allied groups could not meet. Doug Mastriano, for example, was the beneficiary of $840,000 in television spots that his campaign couldn't even remotely produce. I think he spent like $300,000 on his own primary campaign. Um, story after story like that. And we were saying, you know, it's a wave year. Weird things happen in a wave year. You might think that you're getting this really unelectable candidate. It turns out that he wins the election. This is a lesson that everybody should have learned in 2016. Apparently they had not. 538 this morning has a pretty well-reported piece on some 183 candidates. Uh, the headline being, most candidates who think 2020 was a rigged election are probably going to win in November. Uh, this is one of those how it started versus how it go how it's going things, um, where they're shocked by an outcome that they have no right to be shocked by, that all of us were saying repeatedly in writing that this is what was going to happen. And you know, I guess it could be worse. Think of all the non-crazy Republicans who would be winning right now if they hadn't done this. Um, but nevertheless, this is this is what they incepted into existence, a more magnified Republican Party. They Democratic donors dollars to the tune of eight figures went to support this project. Congratulations, Democrats. Enjoy oh. what you're getting next year. Can I and can I just make the point that like you will you will not see in very much media coverage like Kevin McCarthy and uh, CLF and his allied packs were funding the, you know, quote unquote, moderates in those races against the uh, election denier uh, MAGA crazies that the Democrats were funding. It will now be when these guys win, every Republican donor will have to field questions about their support for election deniers because they gave, you know, general funds to, um, you know, Mitch McConnell's pack and McCarthy's pack. I like there will be tons of coverage to the big Republican donors of why did you um, fund these people? There will be no questions asked of the George Soros's of the world about why are these people in Congress? Abe, that was kind of what I was going to say. Oh, OK. Um, but although I was I was sort of wondering if if, you know. The Politico newsroom and, and other places in there despond. Um, might they take this up? You know, might 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 they as 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 part of holding the the the, the party that crushed their dreams uh, accountable, might might there be some some larger airing? But uh, Eliana, you say no. I don't think there will be. I think there will be plenty of stories of who were the biggest donors to the GOP's effort. 
And why did they fund election deniers and denier, denier, denier? Because Carrie Lake will be governor of Arizona and lots of these people who the Democrats supported. But I don't think there will be a real reckoning for the Democratic donors um, who funded these efforts. I, I don't. I mean, Democrats should be the one leading the charge in this. If you are a Democratic donor, you should be frustrated by the way your funds have been used, right? Ends justify the means, by which I mean... If you are focused on the idea that election denial is the worst possible thing you can do and that it's extreme and you have all this evidence that most people don't like election denial and the highest value that you can possibly attain is to get Democrats elected to the House and Senate and secretaries of stateship and governor's mansions in order to prevent the coming of the Reichstag fire, which is literally what they think is going to happen in 24. I mean, Matt Dowd, who 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 is a who is a nut now, but you know, was was would help get Bush elected in 2004. Matt Dowd said, I don't want to compare the Republicans to Hitler or anything, but you know, inflation is what led to the, the takeover of Hitler which is a pretty interesting way, you know, so they're, so they're heading for the Reichstag fire. So anything that gives them an advantage is therefore morally sound, just, and right. And they thought this was giving them an advantage. And if these guys win, it won't be their fault. It will be the fault of the electorate. They didn't do anything but say, hey, if you like Trump, you would like Doug Mastriano. And Mastriano didn't have enough money to spend on that. And he got the gubernatorial nomination in Pennsylvania anyway. That's how I view it. Because like when I read Max Boot and Sarah Longwell and this is sort of the never Trumpers who have effectively now become, you know, essentially democratic political operatives, everything focuses, comes down to any support for Republicans is a support for election denial, which is, you know, now we have the yada yada period from Seinfeld Election denial, yada, yada, Reichstag fire authoritarianism, democracy is dead. How you how those lead inexorably one to the other, I understand. So a secretary of state is elected in, in Arizona who says, I'm not going to count any votes in Maricopa County. Well, good luck to you, buddy, if you actually win and then try not to count the votes in the largest county in the state. Let's see what happens to you. But, you know, you know, you know who's going to take up this issue with the Democrats? It just occurred to me. Are those Democratic operatives, media figures um, who have been saying this is not such a good idea? Uh, I'm thinking of like uh, David, David Axelrod. Um, they are going to be wagging their fingers after this, saying, told you not to be spending on these on these crazy right wingers. This is right, very the, bad. The line peddled by primarily by converts to the cause post post January 6 converts, which, by the way, I don't find to be a particularly untoward reaction to January 6. Nevertheless, um, their line is that you can't blame Democrats or Democratic operatives or Democratic donors for any of this conduct. Republicans cast these votes. They own their choices. Um, and I just think that's it's a race by race situation. So, yes, I mean, when you have a, a Walker type primary who won by 
50 points against all of all of his competitors. Yes, that's a Republican choice. When you have, for example, Doug Mastriano, who won his his race very narrowly against Doug McCormick. Yeah, that ad money probably made the difference. The same with Kerry Lake and half a dozen other half a dozen dozens of other candidates farther down the ballot in the House. Um, these were very tightly contested races. You know, Pete Mayer, who lost his his primary bid, just barely did so. And now you're probably going to get a Republican in that seat who is infinitely worse from the from what you say you want from a Republican party is infinitely worse. So it doesn't matter what Republicans choices were. You contributed significantly or even not significantly. You contributed to some degree to this condition you say you dislike. The hypocrisy there cannot be avoided, cannot be ignored. And, if, and one of the reasons I have a piece up on MSNBC today, why is it that Democrats are not winning the election issue? They're not. Threats to democracy is probably everybody's third issue. If you look at just about every poll in the last month, threats to democracy really does register. But it's split down the middle as to which party is better for it. It's like 47 Democrats, 40 Republicans, something along these lines. Republic Democrats do not own this issue. Why? Because they've done everything they can over the last two years to muddy the waters. They don't care about institutions. They don't care about the Supreme Court. They don't care about the Electoral College, and they're funding people who deny the 2020 election because it gives them a, a slight leg up in primary races and general elections. It is a staggering, um, casual and flippant misuse of what they say is a, is a real priority. And voters aren't idiots. They notice when you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You you say voters aren't idiots, but of course that's that's what we're about to hear. Voters are idiots. We said this the other day. Voters are idiots. Voters are saps. You know they're they're they they have bad ideas and they're bad people and they're doing bad things to America. This country would be you know it's like one of those uh, radical leftist anti-human uh, views now, which is like the planet would be so great if only nobody no human being was on it to despoil it. Our democracy would be fantastic if there were no voters, if this is what voters are going to do. Noah, they, they say more than that it's a real priority. For the past six years, we've heard that a help we need a healthy Republican Party. We can't, we need a two-party system. This is essential to like the health of the country. Our country's going to go to crap if we don't have two healthy parties. And then when push came to shove, they chose like the sick Republican Party, the election deniers, like they choose the crass, uh, you know, political choice over like their high moral principles. Um, in truth, like they are no better than, you know, we quote unquote are. It's all, you know, BS rhetoric. Um, but of course, they now think that we, the Republican Party is so diseased that it can't be healthy and therefore it must be destroyed. And you then think, okay, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, what's going to take its place? Liz Cheney, whom I have great respect for, despite the fact that people, you know, a lot of people listening to me don't like her anymore, but I, I, but she's also started taking up this line about how there's going to be another party. No, there isn't going to be another party. There hasn't been another party of any serious moment in this country for 166 years and you can or 100 excuse me 162 163 years and you can't tell me that okay we're due cuz that's not the way it works one of the weirdest things about the period and we're in is that we simultaneously have heard that the parties are weaker than they ever have been right party bosses don't choose candidates anymore um 
PACs do things and dark money is running everything and all of that. And on the other hand, negative polarization has strengthened the parties, by which I mean you do not have swing voters anymore the way you used to. People who like what Democrats say one year and like what Republicans say the other year. They understand that there's a kind of locked in a culture war if they are in a certain place on how the country is and where the country is and how it behaves and how it treats children and all of that and what the values are. They're going to be on one side or the other. So this is a very complicated political situation that we're in. And the last thing that's going to happen is that there's going to be another political party. We're not getting out of this that easy. Look, I, I totally agree there's not going to be another political party. But if there were to be another political party, and if if now were the moment, it's not going to be the kind of party they're talking about. It's no, not going it to be it's not going to be the sexy moderates who are getting <laughs> getting everyone, you know, into politics. It's it's going to be the nightmare at fringes. Right. Because have more support. Where, than how, how do third party movements form? They form around a strong personality. Right. They don't form around an issue set. So there would be some celebrity that would come out of nowhere to try to create this thing. And nobody has even that kind of stature that you can imagine, except Donald Trump. Um, but yeah, but that he, would form. Right. And he didn't need to form his own party. Did Precisely. He? But there's a there's a corollary there that as the parties become weaker, the people who are uh, beholden to it, pick up the mantle, appoint themselves, you know, uh, honorary flax, press secretaries, uh, operatives, because the parties themselves aren't doing the work. But look, that's an important point. And the other important point to make is that is that um, the Republican Party is cha- these parties are changing their complexions, right? The Democratic Party is now becoming the party of the educated, um, you know, the college educated, the sort of the white collar worker, um, you know, uh, young, you know, more more inclined toward, uh, you know, government solutions to things, whatever. And the Republicans are more are, are poorer. Um uh, struggling more and all of that, but they're also becoming more Hispanic. They're 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 uh, much more uh, religious, and so therefore religion matters. The solutions that religion offers matters, and they're way more parents in the Republican coalition than the Democratic po- coalition. Right? That will change the complexion of the Republican Party. I ju- I just don't know how. We don't know how. We don't know what the what what the rising Hispanic. Tide will do to Republican issue set. We don't know what the parents' revolt is going to do to the Republican issue set. We don't know what the um, decline in sort of like the highly educated among Republicans are going to do to the Republican issue set. And similarly with Democrats, we have some sense now over the last two years of what it's doing to the Democratic issue set. And a lot of what it's doing is anathematic to people who were important members of the Democratic coalition who are being depressed. Like there's all this talk now about black voters and how the only salvation uh, in two weeks is a very large black turnout. You know, like 20, it's sort of like Obama level black turnout. Well, that's not going to happen. Why? Because you know, when black people said cops are being mean to us or, you know, that stuff is bad, they didn't mean don't have cops anymore, as it turns out. That's another Maybe. be careful what you wish for thing. And I don't yeah. believe a lot of these numbers, but yeah. there are very few polls nowadays that showed that Republicans and generics, for example, picking up less than 
double digit support from African-American voters. Trafalgar, yeah. if they're anywhere close to right, they have about a quarter of, of African-American Georgia voters coming out for Walker. I I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't believe it. No, I know. Right. But, but what, right. It's but not I'm just inconceivable. Saying, I'm just saying if you live in a high if you live in a in a in a relatively high crime area. Uh, urban, you know, blue state area. How motivated are you going to be to co- go out to vote as an ordinary person to show the flag against Donald Trump? I don't think that you know Donald Trump is is repulsive and loathsome to a certain class of people, but I don't think it's though it's that class of people. It is every educate it is every college educated and graduate school educated person uh, in America who find not every but you know what I'm saying like who who finds Trump repugnant but i don't know that sort of like get along to go along ordinary 60 50 to 60 thousand dollars a year household income person who was part of the democratic coalition is consumed with hatred of trump and they certainly Maybe they are think, he's just not on the ballot right but and i think they certainly aren't consumed with the idea that abortion is the most important issue facing the country you know, and so, you know, it's a, as I say, these are complicated matters. We're, we're in a period of wild transition. You know, we're only going to know what it looks like 30 or 40 years down the road. Economically, we're in a period of wild transition. You know, socially, the baby boomers are dying off. There's the most important demographic in the history of the United States. And baby boomers are now, you know, the youngest baby boomers like me is in his 60s. Baby boomers are passing from the scene, as as um, as Carl Rove told Jonah Goldberg, uh, uh, excuse me, um, told Dan Senor last week. You know, this could be the last 2020 could have been the last baby boomer election. That's Trump versus Biden. Or if 2024, God forbid, ends up being Trump versus Biden, that really will be the last baby boomer election. It's an 82-year-old versus an 80-year-old, you know? I mean, Technically, that, that... Joe Biden is a silent generation baby. He's not even a baby boomer. Wait a minute. He's oh, that's true. That's right. That's right. That's right. So anyway, everything is changing and nothing is going to, things aren't going to stay the same. You know, and the Republican Party isn't going to stay the same. What's more, if Trump passes from the scene, election denial will not be important anymore. Anyway, Eliana, um, you at the Free Beacon have done this amazing job of reporting uh, on an issue that the sort of like Hunter Biden's laptop, the mainstream press absolutely refuses to take up, although they're not suppressing it the way they suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story. Tell people if they haven't been paying attention what it is that you found and how and how the issue has eluded the mainstream press, but nonetheless is playing a role in in in, in American politics this year. Oh, thank you, John. Say more. I'm just going to clip this and uh, use it in fundraising pitches all over the country. Um, so our reporter, Andrew Kerr, had this wonderful story. You know, we've heard we we've heard nothing from the mainstream media except about Herschel Walker paid for an abortion, which is a great story. Um, but we've heard we had wall-to-wall coverage of the Herschel Walker abortion story. And our reporter Andrew Kerr went down to Atlanta and talked to residents who live in 
a an apartment building that is 99% owned by Raphael Warnock's Ebenezer Baptist Church. Warnock is a past a senior pastor at the church. He's on the document listed on the documents of the ownership of this apartment building that is um, for disabled people and the chronically homeless. The conditions in this building are absolutely abysmal. We have published pictures of it. And during over the last two and a half years, they have tried to evict dozens of tenants for the sum of $28 in past due rent. Um, while Warnock is getting a $7,400 a month housing stipend that he does not have to pay taxes on from this church, um, it really is a blockbuster story that has gotten zero pickup or coverage from the mainstream press, but has made its way into the local media and into the debate. Um, and Warnock has lied through his teeth about his involvement in this um, and knowledge of it. And um, it has become a storyline in this election. Great reporting. And again, let's talk about what damage is done to Democrats by the mainstream media refusing to take issue, take up this matter. If Warnock in the last two years had been at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, had done whatever minor digging, uh, you know, they, they they would have needed to do locally to find to find out some of this stuff. Right. Guys, being a senator. You right. know, for two years already yeah. and ran for a year before that. It's incredible. Right. right. So the Atlanta Journal Constitution has this guy, you know, it has however many reporters it has, or whoever, I don't know, anybody in Georgia, right? If they'd taken this up, looked into it, Warnock would have then been in a position to address the matter before October 18th or whatever the debate was. Could have resolved it could have come up with a spin for it, right? Could have said, we had to evict these people because we had more deserving people behind them. They weren't really, whatever. I don't even know. It's not even my business. I'm just saying like, it does you no good. It, it does you no good to have your stories suppressed because sometimes when they come out, they then explode outward because of the, you know, because they've been tamped down so much. It's like once Andrew, once, once the floodgates opened against Andrew Cuomo, 30 years of Andrew Cuomo's misbehavior came exploding out of this, you know, a pressure-cooked atmosphere, and he was done. And Warnock would have been better served by this story having been out and been and dealt with before he ends up in a room having to answer for it without any good answer. That's what that's what I is. It, am, I, am I wrong or is or is he such a you know Ghanif and that that he would never have he would never have gotten to a decent answer? I mean, credit due to reporters who who dug this up, not just the Washington Free Beacon, which has been doing fantastic work on this and setting the table for a lot of mainstream press outlets to follow up. But you know, credit's due to the debate moderators who brought this up in the debate. I mean, they were actually very fair, surprisingly fair. Uh, and yeah, Warnock probably should have had a better answer to that because it was reported in the past it's not like no one was talking about this so the even more conspicuous that it doesn't have a canned answer for it maybe there is no answer there's also this great story that came out yesterday or the day before yesterday this was in politico not in the washington post about stacy abrams and her the 25 million dollars that she raised for her you know, voting, uh, you know, anti-voting suppression fund. Um, 
that spent nine million of the twenty-five million dollars on a single demented case against the notorious Secretary of State of Georgia um, uh, Raffensperger uh, on claims that the, he had suppressed the vote in 2018. A case that was ultimately dismissed. Nine million dollars spent on this one case. The almost the entire balance of which went to a single law firm run by Abrams campaign chairman. $9 million. Uh, scam? Pass-through? Again, where was this story? This apparently was last year. It was like this all was settled, resolved last year. Why is this coming? Granted, okay, so there are opposition researchers maybe working for working for Kemp who, you know, dug this up and then handed it in a silver platter to Politico, something like that. But what's going on? Like, I mean, we know what's going on. I know what's going on. I know. But I'm just saying, like, it's not, again, it's not helpful. I mean, Abrams is toast anyway. I mean, she, I don't think there's a single poll in which she's not down well outside the margin of error. Um, By the way, it's it's helpful if you can close an issue down and keep it shut down. Um, or at least for as long as as it matters. Right. Um, I'm thinking, obviously, of the uh, of Hunter Biden and, and the laptop. I mean, if you can ma- if you can make a total sort of news blackout yeah. on something. I know. I, I want to say one thing about this and then be done with it uh, and not be done with it because we'll never be done with the hundred. What happened on the Hunter Biden laptop was a scandal. It's a professional journalistic scandal, a horror show, a terrible thing. But it was Hunter Biden's laptop. It's not Joe Biden's laptop. Joe Biden has this very troubled son. And yeah, there are some there are some potentially suggestive emails on the laptop. It came out three weeks before the election. I don't think it would have made a significant difference. If it had been Joe's laptop, that would have been one thing. It's a bank shot to assume that that would have had the effect that, say, Bush's drunk driving arrest or whatever maybe but in a, in a universe in which this very hard to measure things that didn't happen but in a you know take take the temperature of non-events but in an event where this laptop came out and everybody investigated it and didn't pretend like it was russian disinformation then we might have found out that joe biden knew it was a, a real laptop that he was letting all his surrogates go out there including mainstream media professionals and say well this is actually clearly russian disinformation knowingly allowing them oh to set their reputations on no, no, fire no, no, no. no you you missed my point my, the point i'm making is that if the laptop had simply been a, a straight news story and everybody would have covered it um I don't think it would have had a material effect on the election. Not not the campaign's Maybe, behavior I mean, toward discrediting it, which was shameful and shocking. And everybody who signed that letter saying, obviously, the Russians manufactured the laptop should like be, you know, should walk around with a, you know, with a cowbell around their necks, you know, my point while being, people say shame behind them, because what kind of psychosis was that? My only point being is that this is one of many examples that we've talked about over the course of this podcast of Joe Biden's. Uh, allies and supporters mortgaging their reputations in defense of an absolute loser and the recriminations are going to be spectacular oh yeah let's end on that eliana we i think we posited last week or i posited last week that assuming a really terrible result for democrats on november 8th and given your knowledge 
of the media and your excellent podcast I listen to every week, Ink Stained Wretches with Chris Starwalt, where you talk about the worst excesses of the media. And then you do a little night, you do some nice stuff at the end. And Starwalt is always like, no, no. I mean, it's all every, you know, God, God love them. There's so and all much that. good. Yes. Um, when, when is there a story on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post saying that Joe Biden is senile? Would that be the 9th of November? Or the 12th of November. Oh, he's going to be under the bus. Like, I by the end of that week, um, there's going to be the calls for Biden to announce, the formal announcement. He has no intention. Intention has been like the word, you know? He's like, my intention is to run again. He has no intention of running again. But I think it's not just that the they're going to the call week. on him to do that. It is that they are then going to have to put pressure on him to do it by saying things that they have been absolutely unwilling to say, except in kind of sotto voce or hints. Oh, people are going to come forward. There are already Democrats in the Congressional Caucus who have said, we don't want him to run again. But that number will triple, quadruple. Right. Like it's going to become a majority who say, bye bye. Um, yeah but i think they're gonna come after we'll see what happens to pelosi but it's gonna go along with like bye bye pelosi you're 82 bye bye joe biden you're 80 you know time for new leadership i just think there's gonna be like open season character assassination that's what i think i mean character assassination means maybe if you put it that way that he doesn't deserve it but I'm saying they have refused to say things about his cognitive decline and the things that are going on. Biden is going to be stubborn. He said Jill wants him to run again right after he fell asleep on the on that. Uh, you know, Jill thinks we're doing something very important. So I guess I can't quit while after his eyes closed in that interview last week. Um, all of that. They're going to have to push him out of the race. I, I take the under. I take the under on this in terms of time. You think it'll take longer? No, the under. I think it'll take take quicker. Oh, 12 hours. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because um, this is where the media was headed with him, except for that parenthetical moment of hope that, right. that you discussed earlier. Yeah. They, they hit pause on this already. Fair They're enough. set to go. Okay, but I will. I will think. I think it's. I think we're 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 all wrong. I, I'm wrong by saying that. I was joking about the ninth of the twelfth, and you're saying the under. And I would say this, which is that it's going to have to be a piece in January, and it's going to be like this. This piece is the result of more than 120 interviews with past and present Biden intimates, people working in the White House who asked to remain anonymous for fear so that they could speak honestly and frankly, as well as interviews with neuropsychologists brain surgeons, Alzheimer's experts, and <laughs> da-da-da-da-da, all of whom paint a disturbing picture of the president's cognitive faculties. That will be paragraph three after some anecdote about how Biden walked into a wall and Jill had to redirect him to the left or the right instead could be having a conversation with the wall. So the only some consideration that might remember this is October 25th, John, I think you made one of your great all-time predictions. I now I agree with you. I've changed my okay, opinion. January, yes. January, 10,000 word piece with sidebars and, you know, like a video that shows how Alzheimer's works on the brain. And, you know, and then, then some kind of like a point, you know, 
one of those New York Times graphic <laughs> representations of plaque building up in the Corpus Callosa, whatever. Okay. The only the only consideration that the press will have to make in the interim, so we have three months for them to figure out how to get around this, is what's coming up behind Joe Biden. Um, West Wing Playbook, Politico today, former aide to come out Kamala Harris, talked about their experience working in the vice president's office. Uh, they quipped that all we need to do to understand her is, quote, turn on HBO and watch Veep. That's from her own staffers. Yeah. Well, look, you know, we're talking like this and maybe this is all, you know, maybe we're just we're doing the opposite of what the Democrats are doing with the hope. Like maybe two weeks from now isn't going to be the bloodbath that it feels like it's going to be. Maybe, you know, uh, I don't really understand how all every single, you know, we now have like we have. Uh, Whitmer down by three. We have ha uh, Whitmer up by three. We have or or tied with Tudor Dixon. We have Bolduck and Hassan in a dogfight uh, in in New Hampshire. We have these races that are you know Oz is Oz and Fetterman are now two points separated in polls that are credible as opposed to the CNN SSRS poll. SSRS I want to point out who's doing the CNN polling gets a C plus from five thirty eight for being wildly skewed Democratic. So the five polls you saw yesterday showing the Democrats in pretty good shape in some of these states are by a pollster that the liberal 538 says is not reliable because it's too liberal. So that's an important point to be made. But, you know, everywhere you're turning, you have Sean Patrick Maloney in New York, who is now possibly on the chopping block. He's the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. You have districts in Oregon and Rhode Island and other places where seemingly safe Democrats are now in the fights of their lives. And all of that points to a wave. That's the point. If it's happening in Oregon and, and Rhode Island simultaneously, while people who probably shouldn't be in the game, like Lee Zeldin and even Oz, even despite Fetterman's disability here, I mean, everywhere you turn, there's no movement toward the Democrats, there's little bits of hints like in Arizona that maybe this is going to be a very long night and it's not going to be clear. And either one of them could take it, Katie Hobbs or, or Carrie Lake. But it's not like it's, well, Katie Hobbs has suddenly opened up a five-point lead. Even Warnock did not, Warnock benefited for a week from the abortion story. And then everything settled back more and more like the media is in the the mainstream media is in the actual disinformation business and so or misinformation business and so i assume that republicans are going to perform better than you are hearing from the media and you are hearing from the mainstream media that like things are looking bad from the democrats so i have to assume that republicans are going to do pretty well but like i take I, you know i take virtually nothing um of what they say whether it's polls or narratives or anything with very much seriousness other than like it's going to be a lot better for republicans than they are telling people uh i heard rick klein who i guess is the political director of abc news or something like that he was on good morning america i was changing channels this morning so i saw a lot of stuff that i ordinarily don't see so i saw rick klein on trying to be steve kornacki you know with a board and numbers and stuff like that uh He's no Karnacki, but he said something like, look, I mean, here we have the, as you can see, 
in the generic ballot, the Republicans have now taken over the lead from the Democrats, just a bit, 46.2 to 45.8 or something like that. And you know, <clears throat> uh, this is very, you know, this is not what Democrats want to see. And you know that um, because of redistricting and gerrymandering, uh, he said, uh, in these districts, Democrats really have to be up two points or more in the generic ballot even to be competitive, both in the House and the Senate. Now, why is this funny? Because, of course, there is no redistricting in the Senate. Every state gets two senators. There's no redistricting. Democrats do not have to outperform on a statewide race in the generic ballot. They just have to win with one more vote than the, than the Republican. And maybe this is true in the generic ballot for Democrats. But that's the last I heard. The last I heard wasn't that Democrats have to be way up in the generic ballot even to be competitive. So that's part of this misinformation. Really, you're going to start talking about how redistricting is hurting Democrats at the Senate level? And you're the political director of ABC News? Am I taking crazy pills? Well, remember when we heard way back when, like, you know, four or five years ago, that because of redistricting, there was no way Democrats could ever take the House. And then they win the House like two years later. Yeah, it was, was 40, no yeah, way. It was gerrymandered yeah. away from them. Yeah. And also the gerrymander, the, the, the scandalous gerrymanders of 2021 and 2022 were not by Republicans. Scandalous gerrymander was in New York State and it was and it was overturned. Mark Elias was stopped in court uh, in New York State and told what he was doing was blatantly unconstitutional yeah. and tossed out. And that would have been a way bigger story were, were, were it a Republican effort. Uh, he was laughed out of court by a judge, the Democrats' right. top election lawyer. OK, well, I just want to point out, I think we've been doing this now for like an hour and 20 minutes. And I think the reason that we've been going longer on these podcasts is I've started taking to listening. I'm really embarrassed to say this to some of these pop culture podcasts where people do deep dives on like House of the Dragon and stuff like that, because I don't understand what's going on in House of the Dragon. But I sort of want to know. And some of those podcasts last for like three and a half hours. I'm not kidding. Bill Simmons Podcast Network has these podcasts on on you know fandom podcasts, and they go on like on one episode of House of the Dragon, which lasts fifty seven minutes or three and a half hours. So this is my fault. I've gone on too long. I've just gone on too long talking about how we're going on too long. Eliana Johnson, thank you so much. Everybody, go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever, and subscribe to Inkstained Wretches, and of course, go to the Free Beacon and read to your heart's delight about Raphael Warnock and 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 misbehavior uh, all over the place that the mainstream Thank media you. does not cover. Christine will be back tomorrow. For Abe and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.